Welcome to the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. This is a Sports Epreneur Podcast collaboration with Coach Alan Major. We present Clutch Timeout, Championship Culture, and Leadership Discussions with Alan Major. Sportsypreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide. In the Clutch Timeout podcast series, college basketball coach Alan Major talks to elite basketball leaders about stories from the hardwood, leadership lessons, and life. Subscribe to the Sports Epreneur podcast so you can get the latest episodes from Coach Major. You can connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or at sportsepreneur.com. We now welcome Coach Alan Major and the Clutch Timeout podcast series, a Sports Epreneur collaboration. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the uh, third and final of the uh, Clutch Timeout three-part series. And pretty fitting that I have a great friend of mine on today, Fran Fraschilla from ESPN. And obviously, for those of you who have been following these, the first of these three timeouts featured Thad Mata. And we really talked about uh, our connection. And the second one featuring my good friend, Steve Lavin, we shared a lot about reflection with the landscape of culture and leadership and all these conversations. And it's really kind of appropriate that with Fran on now, we can talk about direction because just with the landscape of where we are in this world, we've got a lot to chat about. So correct me if I'm wrong, Fran, head coach at Manhattan, St. John's and New Mexico in that order. Yep. Yep. And now this is year, want to say 15 or 16 at ESPN? You know, I have really, honestly, Alan, I've lost track. I think it's like, <laughs> I think it's 18. I started in 03, 04 officially. So it'll be 2021. I just signed a new two-year deal. Nobody knows that yet. Good for you. Depending on what happens this coming season with coronavirus, well, obviously I'll be at ESPN, but I don't know in what way, shape, or form right now based on where yeah. the virus heads. Anybody who's doing TV this year is probably in uh, uncharted waters. Absolutely. I was thinking of you the other day. I was going through my phone and I saw the picture that we took at the Breslin Center at practice. Yeah. Looked at the date. And at that time, Michigan State's ranked preseason number one, the whole nine yards, yeah. October 4th, 2019. And man, how our world has changed since then, man. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, of course, I'm 61. I thought I've seen it all. But as long as that asteroid heading to Earth that's supposed to hit here in a few months doesn't... (laughs) That's about the best way to end 2020, you know? Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you. I mean, you know, just you go from... We lose Kobe Bryant in January and then the virus kicks and then obviously the George Floyd situation. It's been an unbelievable... Just a series of events, I guess. Yeah. And I guess the first question I wanted you to maybe share is, what have you learned during this time? Because if you're in a leadership position of any sure. sort, yep. you've got to keep your heart and your mind open 
what's the old phrase? You know, great leaders are formed by their times. Yeah, no question. I, I just started reading, uh, just started Doris Kearns Goodwin's book last night on leadership. She's yes. written some great stuff. Team of Rivals is one of my favorite books ever. Um, just finished and, it a few months ago. Yeah, and I've just yeah. started her book on leadership last night. Four presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, Lincoln, FDR, and Lyndon Johnson. Their leadership really was a product of the time they were in. If there was no civil war, we really wouldn't think of Abraham Lincoln as a great leader. Absolutely. No, we wouldn't know anyway. He wasn't tested the way it turned out he was tested. Same thing with the other three. And I think from a leadership standpoint, I think the first thing that you really understand is you have to make adversity your friend. You have to embrace it. You have to expect it. You have to know that when you're in a position of decision-making and you're leading a group, a team, an organization, Mm -hmm. that you can never be surprised by adversity. Absolutely. It's part of the deal. It's part of why you're a leader and why you're in charge. And it's the old story. The wise old philosopher Mike Tyson once said, (laughs) (laughs) everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Until you get hit in the mouth. So, you know. You know best. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So we really got hit in the mouth with the virus. All of us. All of our plans. You know, the other thing, if you're a person of faith like I am, where they say man plans, God laughs. Yes, exactly. So I think that's something that it turns up right here in this time. And then I think even with the George Floyd thing, I know personally, I've reflected quite a bit in the last three weeks, but from a big picture situation, our entire country has been put in a situation of handling adversity. No doubt. And how do you handle it individually is another issue. But from a business standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, from again, a leadership standpoint, how you fit in to the mindset of what happened to George Floyd And how do you reflect on it? How do you handle it with your organization, with your team? And you'll probably ask me this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, the thing that's really hit home to me, Mm -hmm. when you grow up in an environment like I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in a very racially mixed area, you walk around as a white person, especially someone in coaching or athletics, you got this invisible badge on your chest that says, I'm not a racist. Because you just assume that you know, and everybody else knows you're not. Yeah. Almost like a pass. It's a pass. You think you get a pass until you talk to some of your black friends. And this is the main thing that hit home to me, Alan. And a couple of them have had have shared this with me. They said to me, how often have you worried about James and Matthew on a Friday or Saturday night when they went out? And I had to think about that. And I, there's probably been three or four or five times in my lifetime where one of those guys was in incommunicado. Their mm-hmm. cell phone went dead. They misplaced it. They didn't get service somewhere. So I'm texting them at midnight, worried mm-hmm. about them. That's probably happened just a handful of times to me. And some of my black friends have said, I go through this every weekend. <laughs> every weekend, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's the stuff that many of us who have been in this racial melting pot, who thought they had all the answers figured out, yeah. have really had to reflect on or to see somebody's son brutally murdered the way that George Floyd was. Mm-hmm. And to think, except for skin color, that could have easily been my son. Yeah. So I think that's a big thing. I'm hoping that we take empathy to another level from the perspective of the majority of us who are white Americans. Yeah. And if that sure. happens, if we have a greater understanding and appreciation of empathy for our brothers and sisters who are different skin color, whether it be black, brown, Sure. You know, whatever, Hispanic, 
I think that we can make a step in the right direction in terms of healing, but we know it's a process. So I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do my part. And my eyes have been opened in the last two or three weeks. Oh, it's been amazing. My friends that are white, the first question is, what can I do? And you just hit the nail on the head is just empathy. You know, you've got to let this, first of all, just be humbly willing to let it lay on you. Yes. First off, got to really sink in in the magnitude of it. It's not just this George Floyd thing just didn't happen, as we know. I mean, there have been countless George Floyds throughout our history for hundreds of years. Uh, Yeah, without cameras around. Without cameras around. In the 60s, when we get access to television and all of a sudden you see hoses spraying folks and all of a sudden, you know, that's when we really, truly first had to wake up as a country. So, yeah, I think humility is just a huge part of this thing. As you mentioned, you know, I would, if you're in a leadership position, that, that's just got to be that first step of like, hey, I have to be willing to know what I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no question. I also think, see, I've always been a big believer in empathy. Yeah. Empathy is something as simple as a bully in school picking on somebody smaller than them and you stepping in. You know what I mean? Um, empathy is seeing an elderly man or woman heading to the front of a store what, that you're holding a door for them. Yeah. A little longer, and yeah. a little bit longer than you normally would. And I'll be honest, I've done this many times with elderly black folk who I see them coming towards me and I'm already at the door and I'll hold that door a little longer. It's mm-hmm. my way of saying, I empathize with you. Yes, sir. You, probably, you probably had that door slammed in your face many times in your life. But yeah. I think that empathy is such a critical word because you cannot understand what a person is going through. And we're not just talking race here. We're talking life. Absolutely. But it really fits race. But it, until you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, you know? Yeah. So again, I think it's a time of learning. We've thrown that word around a lot lately, learning. Mm-hmm. And I think it is. It's an education for many of us to see if we can make a difference and change and grow and heal. Yeah, you know? for sure. So, yeah. And I, and I think it's going to be a small victories deal as well. Like you holding yes. that door for yeah. For, yeah. elderly black person like yeah. that, those are small yeah. wins in yes. their own way. Yes. And something of this magnitude, we're not just talking about how to eat an elephant. Now it's become how do you eat <laughs> an elephant in the room? Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 now the elephant's in the room, one bite at a time. Those exchanges yeah. have got to kind of stack up over and over again and little by little. Yeah. You and I know about small victories because that's really coaching too. Small victories is just getting a little bit better in practice every day. One player has improved in a certain area. And it's the same thing when you build a really good team from the start of the season to the end. We know it doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen without a foundation of good fundamentals. And good fundamentals in this case is, for me, it's your faith. It's your ability to empathize. It's your ability to love people, to help people, be in a position to be supportive of people. And, you know, that to me is like what we have done with coaching in our careers. Yeah, absolutely. The essence of it, you said a moment ago, it's a, the focus is race, but it's actually a human problem. Oh, no doubt. Expressed no. through race. So, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. just, you've almost well, it's good and evil. I hate to say it this way. It's good and evil. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and really it comes down to good and evil. And, and if you're a person of faith, good and evil is sprayed throughout the Bible. You know what I mean? I mean, it goes back to Adam and Eve and the serpent. Yeah. 
So, I mean, if we can get even beyond race and just say, hey, this is just good and evil. This is exactly. what's the right thing to do. Yes, and, and we humanity. All, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's where I think it really starts. And then, of course, it gets manifest itself many times in race and not understanding someone else's plight. And that could be us when we go to a third world country, you and I. It could be something as simple as being in an environment where it is race and our culture here in America. So I think it gets back to what we said about empathy. And to me, it's a matter of uh, what would... Yeah, I hate to say it because I'm laughing now at all these cliches. But <laughs> in my case, what would Jesus do? You know those... Yeah, my, yeah mine too. Yeah, is, no doubt. So, you know, I mean, that's where you got to kind of crystallize it is. Yeah. Just to be able to say, come on now, is this the right thing to do? Is this what my savior would want me to treat? Hell no, and that's no, where we got to get started. And so that's well, the one person in history that never sized up anybody. Yeah. 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 But he wouldn't be afraid to throw over the tables. Oh, yeah. No, he's no, simple. So <laughs> and it's, it's funny because one last thing is kind of like my religious background, but St. Francis used to say this. I was named after St. Francis. Preach everywhere, but if necessary, use words. This whole thing is now, I think it's necessary to use words. For sure. See, yeah. now it's not just, hey, is Fran a good guy? But is he willing to speak up and say what we've seen in the last three weeks is not right and we have to change? Absolutely. So I, think it's, I think it's necessary to use words right now. It is. Yeah. And then in the long term, sustainable, if you're talking sustainable, yeah, you know, the greatest protest is, especially from a leader's perspective, is how do you live your life on a right. daily basis? I mean, yeah. if you really want to protest day in and day out, you know, my best friend, we've been friends since eight years old, you know, Little League Baseball, he's white. Yeah. And yeah. we very rarely had conversations about race because we were just best friends in our mind. Exactly. We were living no. out. Exactly. No. So we had a two and a half hour conversation a couple of weeks ago when a lot of this was really, you yeah. know, first started really smoking and. And we just kind of looked at each other and smiled and said, you know what? We've kind of been protesting for 43 years. Yeah. In a way of just how you want to live. And so amazing lessons for all of us, man. Think of this next question here. And, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it. I'm sure you have. Yeah. You get a phone call tomorrow from an AD. Yes. And he says, hey, Fran, and let's just hypothetically say you were wanting to get back into coaching. An AD offers right. you a job tomorrow. Yeah. yeah knowing that it's been a stretch since you've been a part of college basketball, although yeah. the beauty of what you do is allows you to keep yeah. as close a finger on the pulse as you can possibly do it without yeah. literally being on the floor. Yeah. How would you be different as a coach now versus then? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I have thought about that quite a bit because I'm, I'm always learning, you know, I'm mm -hmm. a big growth mindset guy. I'm a big, Carol Dweck wrote this book. It's a great book. Uh, great book. And, um, yeah, it's funny. The first thing I would tell you is in the last three months, I have become such a better basketball coach because mm -hmm. I've had so much time to study the game. And yeah. I'm doing Zoom calls with young coaches right now on teaching them pick and roll basketball. I did a call the other night with Jerome Tang and Alvin Gentry, uh, not Alvin, but uh, Alvin Brooks's group. Alvin Brooks, yeah, Baylor. Yeah. The Be Ready group. And what warmed my heart is we had mostly black assistant coaches on there. Mm -hmm. But we had at least 50. And I wanted to stop and they wouldn't let me stop. And we did three hours of pick and roll. Wow. 
And so I've learned so much about pick and roll in the last, and I, you know, of course I knew a lot. It's what I love to do. But in the last three months studying international NBA, I'm passing on so much information down the line because I've learned it. But Mm -hmm. I'm a better coach now than I was when I left. I definitely think, and this really doesn't have much to do with the George Floyd situation, but it does in a way because at least 80% of the kids I coached were black kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. middle-income and low-income families for the most part. As I look back on my coaching career, and I still have great relationships with those guys, but I was a tough, hard-nosed coach. I was very yeah. demanding. I was very particular about little things. Mm-hmm. I would not change a thing in that area. I would not change the high level of accountability that I held my guys in. What I would do is there would be a little bit more humanity. Mm-hmm. There were times when... There's probably a two or three guys in my lifetime, I've thought about this lately, that I need to go back and reach them and say, yeah. I was a complete idiot the way I coached you. And absolutely. I felt that way too. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, a really good lesson I learned, I coached a young guy at Manhattan College. His name was Justin Phoenix. And I didn't recruit him, but he arrived at Manhattan as a freshman when I took the job, recruited by Steve Lapis. I yelled at this kid for two years, Alan, (laughs) every day for two years. Really talented. He had the facial expressions of not caring. He would make me mad when I yelled at him, you know? (laughs) So first day of his junior year, same thing. So after practice, I grab him. I call him over. I go, what do I got to do to get you to play better? He goes, stop yelling at me. I said, I'm going to try that. (laughs) (laughs) For the next two years, the guy was not only a really good player and great. And we had a, we, our relationship repaired. He played overseas for a decade and he, he works for the NBA now. Wow. And, and he got into coaching before he went to the NBA. And yep. now he works in the officiating center in Secaucus. Wow. He's one of those guys at the officiating center. And we laugh about it now because it was a great lesson for me because what it taught me was you can't coach every single guy the same. Exactly. Yeah. And as a young coach, you don't understand that. Like Everybody's got to do it my way, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. highway. And so you definitely cannot verbally abuse somebody. That is it. Yeah, those days long ago. And I'll tell you, if I was yelling and screaming today, and I did this a lot as a head coach, I learned how to yell and scream at the whole team so that I was trying to get my point across to one guy. <laughs> right. Yeah, you hoping the one guy heard it that needed to hear it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I learned that. And then I had a couple guys in my career that <laughs> I could yell at them and they wouldn't take it personally. And they were often either one of my best players or one of my best leaders. Yeah. So I would tell one of these guys, hey, I'm coming after you hard today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know exactly. what I mean? And yeah, he can create his own react. He can get it, brace himself in a way. So, yeah. And so, and yeah. then it, and the team is saying, damn, did he get on so and so? Like, man, he must be unhappy with us. So I tried to really play mind games in a yeah. good way, in a good yeah, way. In a good way. Yeah, for sure. You know, and here's the last analogy I'll tell you about young coaches who might be listening to this. If I verbally attack you, Alan Major, okay? And after practice, I come over and apologize to you. You still remember the attack. Yeah. Okay. So here's the analogy. I throw up on you. It's a terrible analogy, but I throw up on you. I go get soap, water, and a rag. 
and I scrub you down, yeah, you still smell like throw up. Yeah, well, I know. Yeah. So yeah, you're gonna remember it, it for a stretch too. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's there. You could rub it off, but it's there. And so I attack you verbally. I yeah. could apologize to you. You still remember the attack. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that those days are long gone in coaching. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you got to be demanding and tough, accountability, but you got to do it in a way that's humane. Yeah, and the relationship thing, I guess it's kind of a, a two-piece deal. I think it's relationships at a premium now more than ever. Yeah, no doubt, uh, no doubt. The other thing that seems to be at a premium now more than ever, and I thought about this if I got back into coaching, yeah. is the combination of addressing mental health along with oh. psychological safety. Oh, no doubt. And just having this aura in the room when the team yeah. is together, yeah. that this has got to be a safe place because yeah. Plato said it best. Great quote by Plato, be kind because everybody you meet is fighting a hard battle. Yeah. I've told young coaches, and you probably have seen me on Twitter. If you haven't, I've said this to many young coaches. The next frontier in coaching is definitely mental health. For sure. I don't know if it means that while you're in college as a, I don't know if you take some courses in psychology, sports psychology, if you're a coach already, get Mm -hmm. with your sports psychologist in the athletic department, reach out to outside people who have an expertise in this area and really try to dive in on this. Because I think in our society, unlike the way we may have grown up, we didn't have the social media pressure. And all that attention that comes along with yeah. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Absolutely. The giant microscope. Yeah. When you fail and you when you go one for ten from the field one night, you go back to your dorm room and you see you got two hundred and fifty mentions of people think saying that you stink and you're not a division one player, whatever it might be, you know. Yeah. Pressure absolutely. from home, pressure home. to take care of your family. Also I absolutely yeah. I'm in concert with you about mental health. It's a new frontier for young coaches. I actually think, friend, and I might be speaking out of turn on this, but it would not shock me if that becomes actually a, a full-time staff member at certain levels. Maybe not everybody will be able to afford that, but if right. you're at, your, at your power six levels, I can see that person oh, being yeah. a paid staff member at some point. No, as I travel around Big 12 particularly, and I've talked to some of the ADs, I think more than ever now, you got sports psychology people in your athletic department and they're busy. They're busy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's a good thing because of the health and welfare of these guys. And uh I was thinking while we were talking, I want to take you back to one point in my coaching career where accountability is so critical without you being always the bad guy. And uh like you, you and I have been a part of some great wins and some great team accomplishments. Mm-hmm. And I certainly have big wins in my career, but the single best moment of my whole career It happened on a Wednesday in February in 1995. My Manhattan team was like 20 and two. And we were really good. It was a team that ended up beating Oklahoma in the tournament later on that year. Yeah. And we played on a Monday and I gave the team off Tuesday. Mm -hmm. We weren't playing until Saturday. And I told the coaching staff, get ready because we're going out to practice this Wednesday it was. And we're getting ready to go out. And I said, listen, I'm going to throw the guys out five minutes into practice. I'll make something up. Um, I'll, I'll figure something out. But I want them to have another day off. I said, we're in tune. We're fine. Another day off is not going to hurt us. It's going to help us. Yeah, yeah. We still have Thursday and Friday. We play Saturday. And yeah. by mid-February, I don't know how you guys were, but we were only going an hour hard. 
Yeah, hour and a half max. And so I knew <laughs> yeah, we were going to get. And so I said, all right, so I'm going to throw him out. So five <laughs> minutes in, one of my point guards during the warm up session throws a pass. I swear, Alan, it might have, <laughs> instead of hitting him in the chest, it might have been just out here, just like this, like a foot off of where it should have been. I went nuts. <laughs> you think you're so good that you can throw a pass that's I want that pass in his chest. You guys think you're better than you are. <laughs> so I kick him out. I kick him out of practice. Wow. And so I go up to my office and met with old Manhattan College gym. And my assistant coaches come up and they're kind of slapping me five. Good job, coach. That was a good act. Well, yeah. five minutes later, the manager comes up and says, Coach, they're practicing. I said, What do you wow. mean they're practicing? He said, Oh no, they didn't leave. They took the practice plan. They're practicing. So my coaches said, should we go down there? I said, no, it's not our team anymore. It's their team. They they thought they were letting me down and themselves down. Yeah. And so the fun part about coaching is getting back to player relationships is it's important to have accountability. Mm -hmm. and, And they understand that we have a level of excellence that can never be dropped from. But exactly. they have to also understand they're doing it for themselves. Yeah. No, no question. Yeah. When it's player-led, it's a thing of beauty. Man. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how you develop relationships. When they know you're tough on them for a reason that is going to actually benefit them, not only in the next game or this season, yeah. but when you come back 15 years from now and say, Coach, I yeah. didn't understand why you made us touch every line. There you when, go. When we were running in September. Yeah. When no one's around. And no one's yeah. around and no one should really care that much. Yeah. And those things yeah. you hope are lessons that they take into their lives as husbands, fathers, coaches, leaders, getting back yeah. to leadership. Yeah, that's when it's beautiful, man. It's funny you talk about when no one's around. Damian Lillard, I don't know if you saw his quote recently. He said, if you want to be special in front of thousands, yeah, you have to be willing to outwork thousands when no one's around. Well, that's Muhammad Ali. They asked him about being champion. He said, I have to be champion at 5 a.m. in the morning when I'm doing my road work. Yeah. Said, you know, that's when I become a champion. We've seen great athletes. We've been a part of that. I always say this. Some players like it. Some players love it. Some players live it. Mm. Yeah. So you and I have coached mostly guys that like it and love it. Yeah. But when you get a player that lives it. Absolutely. That wants to be great beyond you just coaching them, then you got somebody special. Yeah, no question. Yeah, it's funny. It kind of use the direction thing with you because obviously when I spoke with Dad in our first, we call these clutch timeouts. And so yeah. we did three of them. And, and yeah, Eric, yeah, yeah. Eric and John have been kind enough to do these. So <laughs> good thing you're not Ben Howland because you would have called these timeouts like already. They would <laughs> <laughs> they'd have been burned up the first week of the shutdown. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you saved the timeout for hopefully, you know, towards yeah, no, the end. We're, we're in the fourth quarter now. Man. Yeah, this is, I hope. This is, this is side out. Yeah, we're in side out mode now. <laughs> but the way college basketball is the state of the game right now, I think personally, and I've heard you mention this too, and will it happen? We don't know. But what are just a couple of practical things that college basketball could do to help players transition either to the pro or international level? Because yeah, the college game is on an island right yeah. now. Yeah, And obviously, the pro game and the FIBA game, not that every kid's going to end up in those two arenas. That's really not the point. But there could be, I think, a couple of things that are practically done that I don't think would be that huge. 
or the yeah. change the college game could do to help kids transition. What do you think, in your opinion, if you're just talking about the direction of the college game, how can you help those guys bridge over a little bit? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things. I'm gonna, let's take the micro and then go macro. Macro is what can the sport do for these guys? Okay. Micro is, I think it gets back to accountability. Like I was lucky enough to be around. I coached 18 NBA players mm-hmm. as an assistant and as a head coach. And the one thing I did, and this is particularly true at St. John's where I had five guys in two years make the league, you know, that yeah. played. But the one thing, and I felt really good about this, Felipe Lopez, Ron Artez, Zendon Hamilton were three of those guys. And I remember getting back to accountability. I used to tell those guys, you're going to be hard to cut. Like I had a kid, LeVar Postel from Columbus, Georgia, who played for yeah. us at St. John's. And here's my point. I'm doing my job if when you go to training camp, when they're getting ready to cut down and they say as a coaching staff or with the GM, hey, do we keep the kid from St. John's or do we keep the kid from Cal? I want somebody to say, we got to keep the kid from St. John's, man. He's here every day early. He's working on his game. He's a competitor. He makes practice better. And so that was my job as a head coach to mm-hmm. put him in a situation where playing for me was so difficult in terms of practice yeah. that when they got to a difficult environment of trying to make an NBA team, that they had an advantage. Yeah, for sure. Almost becoming professionals without knowing it yet. That's right. That's right. The overload theory. I used to yeah. make practices harder than the game. And then they would come back and tell me, coach, we don't even <laughs> practice that hard. I'm so thankful that you got on me for these little things. But that's the first thing. And I think every coach has a responsibility, whether it's getting them ready for the NBA or playing professionally overseas or life in general. Again, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. Many of the guys I coach came from lower income families. Mm-hmm. And I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And when I coached those guys, more often than not, they were going to be the first person in their family. Yeah. This is 20 years ago, 25 years ago, in many cases. Dickie Simpkins, for example, who I coached at Providence, his daughter just graduated from Harvard. Wow. And, you know, and of course, I had a son graduate from Harvard, and my grandfather came over on a, came through Ellis Island. He couldn't speak mm-hmm. English. And my dad was a high school dropout, and I was the first person in my family, and really the only one of my brothers and sisters to go to college. Point being, I kind of felt like I had a responsibility to get everything out of those guys. I possibly could on and off the court. No question. And now, so that's the first thing. I think coaches need to do their job and not baby a guy. Because of talent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think about coaching Ron Artest at St. John's. (laughs) And Ron was volatile. I don't know if you noticed that. (laughs) But And someone said, how do you coach Ron Artest? I said, I was crazier than him. (laughs) I had to be because I wanted him to know I didn't fear him. Right. He could have crushed me like a bug, okay? Yeah. But I wanted him to know that I didn't care that even though he was one of the top five players in the country coming out, mm-hmm. that I was going to coach him hard. Yeah. And he's told many people since then that he's appreciated that. So you owe that to those even great players who have that kind of talent. Yes. Because you want them to have long, productive careers because yeah. of the foundation you laid for them. So I think that's the micro level. All coaches need to be able to not be afraid to coach their best players. Mm -hmm. And then I think from a macro level, I just think there's lots of different ways to become a professional athlete. It's not just the college. It's now we got the G League. Some guys go overseas. I think college basketball, by and large, does its job. 
yeah. getting ready for the NBA. I, I would say this, however, because I'm watching a lot of film, Alan, of international basketball. Mm-hmm. College basketball talent and coaching is double A baseball. The European, high level European, Euro League, Spanish, yes, coaching they're getting and the cerebralness with which those 25, 26 year old men play the game and the skill um, development and the skill development. That's triple yeah. A baseball and the NBA is the major leagues. Yeah. So we all can become better coaches at the college level, which is kind of what we're all always trying to do. And then somebody like me, I'm trying to mentor these young coaches to be better coaches. Yeah. Let's get into maybe like even rules. Yeah. That would help college guys transition to become pros. Would it yeah. be a shot clock deal? Would it be a second clock? Yeah. yeah, I think so, because what people who are anti-24 second clock don't understand is that there's a perception that the more possessions in the game, the more talent will win out. Mm-hmm. I say two things. Number one, great coaching will still win out because yes. a great coach will do a number of things. Number one, he'll make it hard for the more talented team to get good shots within that smaller window. Exactly. And the great yeah. coach will set his team up offensively in a scheme that's going to get them a shot a little bit quicker than they normally would. Yes. Yeah. The other thing a great coach will do, will understand that with a low clock, skill development is more important. Mm-hmm. And what we see in the NBA with all these European guys is even big guys at the end of a shot clock can make plays. Absolutely. I think player development at the high school level would be enhanced a, by any shot clock, and then I think mm-hmm. in college, the 24-second clock would be adjusted to quite easily. I agree. Yeah, I agree 100%. And by the way, that will make players mentally quicker in the mind. Yes, because you have to make quicker decisions. So Common sense. The Spurs, Popovich has the point five, five absolutely. You know, mentality. You know, when you catch it, it you know, shoot, pass, or dribble, and just... No doubt. Oh, I think the flow of the game, it might be a little muddy at first. Yeah. I think yeah. the games would flow faster. So I've been watching a lot of FIBA stuff too, and I agree with you. I mean, I, yeah. I think even though not all guys are going to achieve that level, I just think yeah. that one thing right there would really help yeah. them cross the bridge a little, I, yeah, little, I, little I, easier. Yeah, I think processing the game is really critical. And as coaches, it's a hard thing to figure out how to do. Like, how do we teach them to process the game in a quicker manner? The point five is a perfect example. Nikola Jokic, the great young center with the Nuggets, I spent Mm -hmm. time last summer with his Serbian coaches that coached him before he came to the league. And it was as simple as, like, in a short roll situation. We're getting a little technical here for the listeners. But in a short roll situation, when they threw it to him at the foul line area, they Mm -hmm. put two shooters in the corner. The coach yeah. was underneath the basket, and if he put a fist up, it was to attack the basket. If it was an odd number, it was to pass it to the right. Yeah. If it was an even number, pass it to the left. Yeah. It was kind of like you see some of those sports training things with the red, yellow, and green lights. Yeah, hand-eye coordination. Hand, Steph, Curry, you know, Steph Curry does a lot of that. It's as simple as just training decision-making. Exactly. And, and I think college coaches, quite frankly, could do a little bit better job of that, the decision-making yeah. part. I agree. No, yeah. I totally agree. 
Well, hey, man, I got one more for you. Yeah. And I really appreciate you doing this because I know you've been... I'm not busy. I'm not busy, <laughs> man. This is easy. <laughs> Hopefully I can keep... Yeah, you, it, it must be a honeydew list waiting. You want to drag this deal out? Of- yeah, no, I'm good, man. I'm reading. I'm watching tape. I'm talking to my friends on Zoom. This is a pleasure. This is where we have this unique time in our lives where we do have some free time. So Yeah, no, it, it has been great. It really yeah. has. Best advice for leaders today in any field. Yeah, obviously, we focused on coaching. And yeah. Speaking, talking, yeah. But the greater umbrella of these timeouts has also been culture and leadership. So Eric and John, variety of people that might touch in and listen to this. Yeah. It could be coaches at any level, managers, CEOs. They post this on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. So you have a guy that owns a small business that listens to this. It could be a guy that's a CEO at Eli Lilly. I have great advice. I learned this from experience. First of all, I told a bunch of coaches the other night, wisdom is mentioned a lot in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Wisdom to me, personally, it's a collection of a lot of failures and some successes. That's wisdom, okay? Being able to go back and do something a little different than you did it and realize it was a mistake. Here's the best advice I could give anybody, and that is in position of leadership, create your own board of directors. Every person in leadership should have three or four or five people in their lives. And it could be a spouse, although they tend to think like you do. Yeah, they're they're, they're a little biased. I think that's an honorary member of the board of directors, okay? But, (laughs) (laughs) But I do think a spouse, a pastor or a priest, a relative, a coach who influenced you, someone who's a leader already... There's got to be three or four or five people on your own personal board of directors when you're making a life-changing decision, whether it's career or otherwise, that before you make that decision, you can reach out to them and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking of doing. What do you think? Absolutely. Give me the pitfalls. Give me the positives. And that they're willing to share their opinion with you in an honest, unvarnished way. Mm -hmm. Because I know as a young coach, I had friends. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I had a wife that loved me, but I didn't have, I didn't cultivate three or four or five people that I could say, I need to call Alan to mm-hmm. see what he thinks about this before I take this job. Yes. And yeah. so I think anybody in leadership, and we know this because every major corporation has a board of directors. Right. And anyway, but in a personal sense, I think you're really hurting your opportunity to be a great leader. If you don't have people in your life that you could reach out to to help you talk through life-changing decisions. Absolutely. And they're willing to tell you the truth. Without a doubt. And that's why I I notice as a coach, sometimes it's not, you can't really utilize your coaching staff on your board of directors because you got that group think every day. Right. Exactly. You're in the same office with the same four people every day for five years. Yeah. You're going to listen to their advice, but you can't just rely on it. Because there's that group think of just, they don't want to tell you, honestly, sometimes. Right. But they work for you. Exactly. But I yeah. know being a good assistant, and I know being a good assistant is being able to tell somebody who's a head coach the truth. But I just think beyond this coaching staff. I agree. Uh, that you got to have people that are not in that foxhole with you that can still give you really good advice. Yeah. My analogy for that is, I want to thank you because you've been somebody like that for me here in recent years. And I appreciate that. It's like the person that's you're in an art gallery and you're in the room by yourself looking at a picture. Yeah. And you call your board of directors in one by one. And each one of them is going to walk in the room 
yeah. and stand it, but they're not going to stand in the same spot as you would look at the picture. Right. They're going to stand at a different spot and then they're going to say, Hey, come over and walk over here and stand where I'm standing. You're looking at the same picture. The light hits it different yeah. on their side of the room. Maybe the shape in the picture, yeah. the tree looks different from their side of the room. So that's the beauty of having everybody kind of walk in that room with you. They're all going to stand yeah. in a different place. Right. And they're going to be as objective and truthful and loving, sometimes correcting. They have a different perspective on the same picture. Exactly right. Different perspective. Yeah. And you need those different perspectives because sometimes we all know, and we've both been in that head coaching leadership position where you just get oh, tunnel vision. No question. Uh, yeah. And again, if I had to go back in time, and this is for young coaches, this is for young leaders, business owners, make sure you have people that you can count on to give you really good advice honest, unvarnished, and they're doing it because they care about you. Yeah. And then it makes you make a decision a little bit easier. So I think above all, I'd have a board of directors if I was a young aspiring leader. Yeah. Especially now more than ever. Absolutely. <laughs> we live in a complicated world and we're trying to simplify it. <laughs> right, right. No doubt about it, man. Yeah. Well, friend, hey, man, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you doing this. This is going to kind of close out the little three-part clutch timeout miniseries and this is the equivalent of a nice side-out elevator, three-point oh, shot. You, know you know what we're doing? We're taking a timeout. We're up 25. We're emptying a bench. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so UCLA, John Wooden ending. Yeah. This, yeah. This timeout is a good timeout. We're not... There we uh, go. Yeah. Like the cigar. Yeah. <laughs> like the cigar. Yeah. yeah. So no, it's a pleasure. Anytime I get a chance to talk to you and catch up, it's a pleasure. And then we make each other better. So it's a good thing. I do. I appreciate your friendship, buddy, and enjoy the family and uh, stay safe and healthy, man. I hope Thanks. to see you soon. And hope Thanks. to see you soon in person. Yes. Sounds good, Alan. I've enjoyed this and then uh, we'll catch up soon. You got it, buddy. Okay. Take care. Bye. One of my favorite things about our Sports Epreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at Sports Epreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sports Epreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Mm-hmm.